Hi friends, welcome to another episode of We're Going There and today we are doing just that. I'll be honest with you, today's topic is not an easy one to discuss, but we can't say that we want to be real and raw and have great conversations without being able to handle the weight of those conversations. Today I am talking about depression, but from the narrative standpoint of loving and living with someone battling depression. What I've noticed is that most of the conversations around this topic are from the vantage point of the one dealing with depression. But today we are learning from a dear friend who has lived through the pain of watching a loved one battle and take their own life due to mental health issues. Before we hop into the conversation with my friend Kayla Steckline, let's see what the word of God has to say about this topic. Depression is something that affects many today and has been around since the pages of the Old Testament. From King David, who lost his newborn son and engaged in illicit sinful activity, to the widow Naomi, who lost her sons and husband for no reason, to Job, who lost his sons, daughters, cattle, and wife, we see many people in the Bible battle with loss, suffering, anguish, and depression. What's your first reaction to those dealing with depression? I had lunch with Kayla near my home in Orange County, California, and over salads and green tea, I listened to a woman who has survived so much and yet still holds a story of hope so beautifully. She's like a modern day Ruth from the Bible. Now, some of you might know this, but my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Ruth. And here we find two women, broken, busted, in a desert, who find their way back home to a place called Bethlehem, to their community. And when Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, comes back into her community, the first words out of her mouth is that she is bitter with God. She's lost everything and she feels abandoned. Now, most commentators make assessments about Naomi's bitterness and harp on the idea that we aren't supposed to be bitter. We aren't supposed to feel blue. Bitter is bad. Naomi's bitter. Therefore, Naomi is bad. But from David's painful laments to Job's honest questioning, we see hints of depression, anxiety, and isolation. Both the authors of Hebrews and Ephesians warn us against bitterness, which I agree with, but there is something powerful about Naomi's honesty. If we are honest, we all go through seasons that at one point or another, in some way, resemble Naomi or David or Job. No matter what your theology, how much you love God, or how much scripture you can quote, at some point, you're not going to be happy with God because he didn't do what you asked or come through in a way that you thought that he would. What's great about Naomi is that she had the courage to say it. How many times have you sat in church angry, bitter, frustrated, upset? But the moment someone asks you, how are you doing? You smile and say, I'm fine. That's a lie. and You know it. When your small group consists of Ben and Jerry's, you might be eating your emotions. If your prayer circle is comprised of Jim Bean, Johnny Walker, and Jose Cuervo, you might have a drinking problem. Don't lie. Don't hide. Don't pretend that you're fine when you're not. In fact, we get our English word hypocrisy from the Greek word for actor, or literally translated, the one who wears a mask. As Christians, we should know that masks do not belong in the body of Christ. Naomi was candid about her station in life, even if it was uncomfortable for others to hear. And she decided to lament and mourn and share her grief in community back in the company of God's people. She said, my life's horrible. God's forgotten about me. And it feels like God is upset with me. If she were to say that drunk at a bar at 2 a.m., we might guess that maybe this woman had lost her faith. But where was she? She was with God's people. This is her showing up in small group, going to church, being with friends, and honestly owning her grief and depression. My dear friend, Dr. Deborah Gorton, is a clinical psychologist and helped give me clinical insight on my last book, How to Have Your Life Not Suck. And she says depression is almost always rooted in a cause. Advanced technology has allowed us to see actual changes in the way the brain functions before and after individuals with clinical levels of depression have gone through successful treatment protocols. 
This suggests that the influence of thoughts and behavior on emotions such as depression have both a cause and effect impact. While these implications don't simplify the release from depression as merely deciding to believe something else about our circumstances, it does give us hope to the possibility that shifting our perspective and actions can have an impact on our emotional state. Naomi, King David, and Job are all excellent examples of this. Today, Kayla is going to walk us through her journey with depression and shed light on something so dark. Kayla, welcome to We're Going There. I am honored to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Honored to be here. So good to see you. Through my I know computer. it's been too long. Quarantine has kept us apart. Um, we don't, we're not going to get into the details of this, but I actually met you um, at church and it, I didn't even know that you were there, but a little sneaky sneaky told me that you were coming in with the boys and visiting church. So it wasn't until shortly after that we actually got to sit down, which I mentioned in your introduction to sit down over lunch and really get to see uh, your heart and learn your story. And it's so moving, moving, and it's so beautiful that I want to share that story here. And so welcome to, we're going there, Kayla. Thanks for having me. So honored to be here. And I love the Father's house. I want to say that like off the get-go, my boys and I found refuge at your church. You know, we mm. felt like we were kind of church homeless for a little bit and we were hopping mm. around and we loved before COVID, before COVID hit, <laughs> coming in on Sunday and then going to Disneyland, Disneyland after the day uh-huh. and kind of made a day <laughs> out of it. And so I love what you guys are doing and I'm cheering you on. You will always have a seat at our table. We love and appreciate you. Um, hey, we want to, I, I want to, I want to sit down and I want to have a conversation with you um, because your life has been very crazy over the last two years. And the topic that I want to just kind of, the title of the show is we're going there. And that's what I want to do. I want to kind of demystify and destigmatize topics of mental health and depression in the church. Now, this is a very big topic that we're not going to be able to fully uncover. But I think that if Jesus taught so many people and changed the world through story, I believe that that power still remains today. Mm -hmm. So Kayla, will you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah. 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 So two years ago, I was living the life of my dreams. I really, truly had everything I could have ever wished for or dreamed for or wanted. I was married to my dream guy. We were in the trenches of full-time ministry, leading a beautiful church in Chino, California that he had grown up in. My husband had grown up in the church. His dad was the lead pastor. They had started it when he was three years old. And so the church was handed off to my husband. And it was just this beautiful journey that we were in together. And we loved it. Like I loved being a pastor's wife. Like I took pride in being a pastor's wife. I loved sitting in the front row on Sunday and like, that's my guy on stage. And he's like talking about me. And I'm like, yeah, like I'm his wife. He's my guy. Like I was so proud of my life. And in the fall of 2017 is kind of when everything started to shift. Uh, My husband, Andrew, started having panic attacks. And these panic attacks really came out of nowhere, out of the blue. And um, they were very, very debilitating, happening like three to four times a week. And they were happening for months. And so we were seeing doctors trying to figure out what was going on in his body. And he was doing blood work and tests and seeing specialists. And it was in April of 2018 that he had a massive panic attack that actually landed him in the hospital. And it was after that, we had the board over to our house that night. And we're like, okay, 
this isn't working. Like enough is enough. This guy's been having panic attacks like three to four times a week. He just had a massive one the week before that, like right before Easter services, eight Easter services that weekend, a security guard had found him in the bathroom floor in the middle of a panic attack. And then he, he had another one the next week and he was in the hospital. We're like, enough is enough. Like he's suffering. We're suffering. He can't live like this anymore. Like we have to figure out what's going on inside of his body. And the tests and stuff were taking so long to come back clear or come back with some kind of answer. And so we put him on a sabbatical and it was a, um, there was no timeline on the sabbatical. Like he really truly had as much time as he wanted to heal. The board wasn't putting pressure on him. Our family wasn't putting pressure on him. Like the only person putting pressure on Andrew was Andrew. Yeah. And so a few weeks later, uh, we went and saw a psychiatrist. Um, his doctor had referred him to a psychiatrist and it was in that psychiatrist's office that I'll never forget him turning, the doctor turning and looking at me and saying, your husband has depression. And I was so shocked. Um, I still don't know why I was so shocked, but I really was so, so shocked. Like I truly did not see it coming. My husband was invincible in my eyes. Like he was the kind of guy that like rose to the occasion every single time throughout the whole time I had met him. Like he would find a way, he would make a way, he was driven, he would stay up night, he would get up early, he would work on the weekends. Like he would do what it took to get the job done. And I think it all just caught up with him and he just burned out and hit a wall and so he was diagnosed with depression and we started this journey in April 2018 of depression and and it was hard it was really really hard we had three young boys at the time they were two four and five and so I was torn between being caretaker of my children and then trying to like also care be caretaker of my husband and take care of his mental health and create space for him and have space for conversation with him and then getting pulled to go be with my three wild boys and it's summer so they're home all the time and so it was a really really tough summer and Andrew I really never knew who I was going to get coming out of the bedroom in the morning I didn't know if he was going to be sad or angry or if he was going to be full of anxiety or if he was going to be happy or if he was going to be stressed out. Like I didn't know who I was going to get every single day. And so it felt much like walking on eggshells and it was really hard um, to determine who I was dealing with throughout that summer. Was it um, healthy Andrew or was it sick Andrew? And I think that's the, um, question when you're living with somebody with mental illness you have to be able to differentiate who you're speaking to and there's a huge learning curve in that and so I was learning he was learning we're tackling this thing we're doing everything we knew to do to get him better he was seeing a psychiatrist every other week uh, we were seeing a therapist together for two hours every week he was taking medication he would go off by himself and have solo trips and spend time with God. I mean, he was running to God. There were multiple occasions where I came into our bedroom and he had his big Beats headphones on and he was laying in our bed and he was weeping and listening to worship music. Like he was running to God with his pain and I was running to God with my own unique pain and we were trying to find healing. And so by July, the doctors actually thought he was getting better. And so they thought the next step in his healing journey would be to go back to work. And Andrew being driven for excellence and having this drive for success, uh, thought that that was the right thing too. And so he went back to work on August 1st, 2018 and really hit the ground running. He gave two powerful messages on mental illness. He called the series Hot Mess and he was using his own example 
his own journey through depression as the example. He gave out stats from the NAMI website. He talked about suicide. He gave out the suicide hotline number. Like he knew all the facts. He would have known where to go to get help. So headed into the third week, he just had a really awful day in the office. There was a trigger and his, his mind was still broken. When he returned to work, he told our staff and our family that he was at about 65%. He wasn't 100% healed. And so he wanted to ease back into ministry and ease back into his role. And his broken mind that day could just not process um, what had happened rationally. And so... While we were away, you know, we realized quickly, like, okay, he's not better. And he's actually um, a lot worse than we thought that he was. Like, we maybe need to take a step back. Maybe he wasn't ready to go back to work. And so while we were away, um, making a plan for Sunday, finding a guest speaker, we had a big team rally that night that we had to, like, make plans for too. So while we were away from him for a little bit, he attempted suicide. And we were honestly so completely shocked like so completely shocked the two-year anniversary was just a couple days ago and it's like that same shock and terror and horror and trauma comes rushing back in from that day like just complete utter shock like here's that here's this guy that we thought was getting better like he was released to go back to work you were doing on paper and doing all the right things we knew to do to get him better this should not have happened to him he knew where to go to get help like how did this happen to him and so he was rushed to the hospital and the doctors ran a bunch of chat tests and unfortunately there was nothing that they could do. And so the next day on August 25th, 2018, he went to be with Jesus and I was handed a brand new life that I never saw coming. Okay. This is the moment where we just have to inhale and catch our breath. Your story is is one that is so real and so raw. And I know that there's people that are going to be listening that this is going to be a lot for them to listen to. Um, we're going to come back to this, but we're going to go there. So we talk a lot about our loved ones who are wrestling with mental health and depression, maybe even suicide ideation. But sometimes I think that the caretakers get lost in the shuffle. So during this time, I know you had mentioned that you were caretake, caretaker for your three boys, but you were also caretaker for your husband. But like, what, what are you going through? Like, what are you feeling in the process of all this? It was so hard. Like I would walk around my house and I would whisper under my breath, I hate my life. Like mm -hmm. it was so, so, so hard and so exhausting. And I found myself like scrolling through social media and getting the little snapshot of other people's lives. And I have friends that are like at the beach with their husband and their kids and they're at Disneyland and they're going on vacation and they're like having this beautiful, fun time as it seems from, you know, far, right. far away. Um, and I remember feeling so jealous and so frustrated that my life looked the way that it did and that it wasn't getting better. And I was crying out to God and I was begging him for healing and I was praying with my husband and it felt like God was silent and it felt like God was far away. And so my uh, spiritually, I was run dry and empty and felt alone and emotionally, like I felt very lonely, you know? Um, when he got diagnosed, it seemed because of the way the depression manifests itself, um, it manifests itself in a lot of anger and frustration and not what you typically hear about depression. You know, you think mm -hmm. sad. When you hear the word depression, you think sad. Um, but in Andrew's case, there was a lot of anger and frustration and his 
personality wasn't the easiest to be around a lot of the time. And so family and friends tended to back away instead of leaning in. And so I really felt alone. Um, and I really felt alone, not only um, from friends and family, but also in my own home. You know, my husband was back in his bedroom most of the day and I was taking care of these three kids by myself and their three wild boys that are up from 6am to 9pm and it's nonstop. And it was really, really, really hard. And I did not do a good job of creating space for myself to rest and to get filled back up so that I could keep pouring back out. So as you are wrestling through what this, what this new normal looks like and this new life for you, and it's not the life that you had imagined where just a year before everything was perfect. So it feels almost kind of like you're picturesque or your picture of shalom is broken. So you get to the point where you find out that that your husband and father of your children has taken his life. Where, where do you go from there? It's a really good question. Flat on the floor, just flat on the floor. I mean, it knocked the wind out of me in so many different ways. I didn't eat for two weeks. I didn't sleep. I couldn't function. I was so incredibly broken, like so incredibly broken. But the craziest part of that, in that, was that all of a sudden this God that felt so silent and so far away was all of a sudden everywhere, all the time like surrounding me. And so I was so incredibly broken and I was on my knees on the ground, like every single night after he passed away, I would literally lay flat on my floor in my bedroom and cry out to God and tell him, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. Like, I cannot believe you allowed this to happen. And I can't do this. Like I cannot take care of three kids by myself. Like what am I supposed to do? I'm 29 years old. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. Like what am I supposed to do? Like how am I supposed to provide for three kids? How am I supposed to move on? How am I supposed to live without my other half without the love of my life like I loved my life so much God why would you allow this to happen and so it's that ultimate surrender you know I found myself surrendering every dream I ever dreamt for my life every hope I ever hoped for for my life everything I knew to be true about my life I was just surrendering to God and I know it sounds like the Christian cliche thing to say, but literally God was everywhere. Like even my best friends that were like on the floor next to me, like literally on the floor next to me, crying with me, sharing in my pain with me. Like they would tell you that they saw the hand of God so clearly in my suffering. Like he was so close. And when, when it didn't seem like there was a way, it didn't seem like there was, I was going to make it. It didn't seem like finances were going to come through. It didn't seem like there would be opportunity for me to do anything with my life. Like I, it felt so dark when it felt like there was no way, like he truly made a way and he just started opening door after door, after door, after door and connecting me to amazing, incredible people that were speaking love and truth and hope and purpose and healing into my life, like right away. And I know that's not normal. Like I know that that's not the case for everybody. And so I had this heart of gratitude and like honestly, like wonder and awe of just the sovereignty of God and the closeness of God and the nearness of God from that very first week. 
he was everywhere and everything all of the time. So, so you now are a 29 year old widow with a bachelor's degree in psychology asking, where do I go from here? What, what do I do? So for maybe for those listening who maybe their story is different in a lot of ways, but similar in the way of asking, where do I go from here? My loved one is not the person that they were. Um, life looks so different. I, I follow you on social media. You are so floored in your language. You're so honest and raw with your experiences. I, I love reading your real life journal. Um, now speak to the person who might not fully understand your story, but resonates with your story. We're, what would you tell them? What have you learned in the process of like falling prostrate and feeling like mm -hmm. God has left you and yet simultaneously feeling his overwhelming presence? What do you tell that person? That there is a way to live with the pain that God teaches you and that um, you can live with the pain. Living with the pain is possible. Like that's the biggest thing I've learned, I think, through these last two years of walking in the deep, deep, dark trenches of pain. Like I have, um, yes, been on the floor, been on my knees, like been completely, have the wind completely knocked out of me. And I've also struggled with suicidal thoughts. I've also wanted to leave this place forever because the pain is so absolutely overwhelming and it feels like it's never going to go away. Like I look ahead at my life and it just looks exhausting some days. And I'm like, I, I don't want to wake up again tomorrow and have to do it all over again. Like this is so hard and it's never going to get better. Like those are my really bad days. And it's like in those moments where I ask God, like, show me how to live with this pain. Like, teach me how to live with this pain. Um, give me the strength to live with this pain. Like, because of what I lived through, I know suicide is not the right option. I know suicide is not the solution. I know that um, staying alive is and staying here is and fighting for life is. And so what I've learned is that living with the pain is possible and you can build, like, you can build a beautiful life around the pain. And what I've also learned is that the pain is unchanging. Like that same pain that I felt that very first day when I found out about the suicide, that same um, like pit in your stomach, elephant on your, on your chest, like all over aching, groaning pain, that same pain will be with me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. The grief will grow smaller, and so it will get tapped less often, but that pain will be with me for the rest of my life. And there are some days where it's just as mysterious and just as confusing and just as debilitating and just as overwhelming as it was that very first day. And I think that's um, not something that you understand unless you've lived through a very painful loss or experience. I, I think I thought before I lost Andrew that that pain would just go away with time, like time heals all wounds. And what I've learned is that it doesn't, um, even two years later, like it doesn't, um, but you learn how to live with the pain and that building a beautiful life around the pain is possible. And I have this mantra that I've kind of just developed for myself. I had a conversation with a friend one day and I was talking about how I had this beautiful life. Like I loved my beautiful life and I had this beautiful life that, life that I had worked hard for and that I love and that I had sacrificed for and that I thought I was going to live for the next 30 years. And when Andrew died, that beautiful life completely was shattered. 
And so I said on the phone with her, I'm like, it feels like I'm rebuilding beautiful. It feels like I'm rebuilding this beautiful life and that beauty is still possible. It can still be beautiful, but the beauty is just going to look completely different than it did before, but beauty is still possible. And so I would say to the person that's sitting in the unbelievable, unbearable, pain-filled circumstance, that there is a way to live with the pain. And that even though it looks ugly and horrific and traumatic and overwhelming right now, and you don't think you can get up and do it again the next day, that there is a way to live with the pain and that beauty is still possible. That peace is still possible, even in the most painful, overwhelming, confusing circumstances. This cannot be a better way to pivot the conversation because I think when we talk about such real and hard topics like depression and mental health is that it's kind of just like, okay, now let's jump to the solution. But I think that you've really gave us a practical handle. Like we have got to hold on to that pain. Um, I've been forthcoming with you about dealing with like a loved one in my life with mental health. And it's, it, I keep on thinking like today's the day where it's all going to be better. Today's the day it's all going to be better. Today's the day it's all going to be better. And the weight and the reality, even just with the truth of what you said is that it's okay if it's not. And I'm going to build a life of faith and hope and love and beauty, even though we're still dealing with this pain. So I don't want to rush through this. I don't want to like speed past the pain. Mm -hmm. So I love that you've laid that foundation. But I also know that in this rebuilding of beautiful, you are learning so much. I, I, for one, cannot peddle your book enough. It's coming out. And I want, before we talk about like, you know, the practicals, I actually want to know what have you learned in writing it? Because as, as someone who writes books, you learn so much about yourself and you learn so much about the topic that you're writing about in the process of writing. So yes, I'm going to read the book, but I want to know what did you, what did Kayla learn in writing this book? I think I learned to, um, it really helped me to zoom out of my circumstances and of my trauma and of my situation and of my loss. It really helped me zoom out and just see the bigger picture. And it developed um, deeper empathy in my heart for Andrew and his suffering and um, the real physical illness that he was, that he was suffering from. And it really helped me. I wish I would have had this book when I was walking um, beside him that summer. Like I wish I would have tried to better understand what was going on. I was just so exhausted and didn't have space for it. And so I feel like, you know, now two years later and through writing this, like this book was my therapy. Mm. This, I would sit at my computer. I'm sure a lot of writers it's this way. I would sit at my computer and I would type and I would weep. And I would say that there are equal amount of um, tears that I shed as there are words in the book. Like I would just sit at my computer and type and weep. And it was so therapeutic and so healing for me um, to force myself to put my experience into words. Like the book is just my story. You know, I'm not, I don't have some PhD. I don't have some fancy degree. Like I have a bachelor's in psychology. Like anyone can go get a bachelor's in psychology. Like the, the book is just my story and my life circumstance and what I've learned um, along the way. And I think, I think it really showed me, um, I think I learned a lot about God through it too. I think it really like sitting and writing and researching and um, getting deep in the theology. Like I think it really expanded even just suffering and trauma and walking out these last few years. Like it has expanded um, the way that I 
walk with the walk with God the way that I do life with God, the way that I see everything, the way that I see mental health and mental illness and suicide and depression. Um, I would just say my view has been expanded just across everything. Okay. So let's talk about the book. I want to know, um, you mentioned a little bit of like, you wish that you had this book when you were going through what you were going through with Andrew, but, um, for someone that has like been piqued by your story or someone that is like mirroring your story and they're like, oh my gosh, this is an answer to prayer. Uh, talk, talk to me about the book. Like, what do you want people to know? And, um, also give us some details cause I can't wait for people to get their hands on it. Yeah. So the book, I mean, it's really truly for anybody. Like if you're walking through a season of mental illness, like this book is for you. If you're walking alongside somebody that you love that is struggling with mental illness, this book is for you. If you know nothing about mental illness in general and just want to learn more because it's everywhere, like one in four people struggle with mental illness. If you just want to learn more and develop empathy and compassion, this book is for you. Um, It really truly is for all of us because just statistically, we're all going to run into somebody that is suffering from depression or anxiety or suicidal ideation at some point in our life. And so I really wanted it to be practical. So the book isn't just a sad story. It's also super practical. And so there's handles throughout all of it of like, what what do we do about depression? Um, what do we do about isolation? How do we get out of isolation? What's the difference between isolation and solitude? There's a whole chapter on spiritual warfare because that was super real um, for us and Andrew's experience. And um, I wanted to include that in there because it was so real for him and a very real part of what we walked through. Um, talk about fear and what do we do about fear and how sometimes fear is good for us and other times it's not. I talk about suicide, the myths surrounding suicide, you know, these things that we were taught, like when someone dies by suicide, it's like a straight ticket to hell, Um, like things like that. Just trying to um, debunk the myths that we may have picked up about suicide, depression, and mental illness along the way. And I hope that this book helps all of us just have a greater, um, to view mental illness through a different lens and to develop a heart of empathy and love for others. I love it, Kayla. I can't wait for people listening to the podcast. The links to the book will be in the show notes. Um, if you follow me on social media, there will be a swipe up feature directly to Amazon. I cannot advocate not just for this book, but for the writer of this book, Kayla, as I am looking at you and listening to you, I'm excited about this book, but let me just tell you deep in my heart. I just, I can't wait for your next book because you are going to write a new chapter of creating beautiful again. I am honored to know you. I'm so excited that your voice and your message is going to go to so many people. And I'm honored to play just a small part in that. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me and for being brave with me and for having this conversation with me. I know that might've been tough to hear, but if we were to evaluate our own lives, we might find ourselves wrestling with the same kind of mental or emotional and health. Being bummed or blue is one thing, but depression can mask itself in several symptoms. To shed light on this difficult topic, here are 10 signs given to us by Dr. Deb Gordon that you might be dealing with depression. Number one, feeling sad, lonely, empty, or a number of other emotions that leave you in a heavy or irritable mood. Other people in your life may make observations about this as well. Two, feeling or describing yourself as worthless. Three, feeling an over excessive amount of guilt. Four, having a decreased desire to engage in things that you normally find energizing, fun, or pleasurable. Five, noticeable changes in weight. That could be a loss or gain of weight. Six, 
significant changes in your sleep habits, sleeping too much or difficulty falling or staying asleep. Seven, difficulty getting motivated to engage in everyday activities, getting to work, completing daily tasks, spending time in community. Eight, loss of energy or constant fatigue. Nine, difficulty staying focused. 10, thoughts of harming yourself or suicidal thoughts. If you feel like you might be experiencing depression or even just feeling a general lack of enthusiasm for life, consider reaching out to a mental health professional, a counselor, psychologist, or social worker. If it feels a bit intimidating, make a commitment to open up with a friend, a family member, or a pastor, someone else that you trust and can be vulnerable with. Loneliness and isolation are like oxygen on the fire of depression. It could worsen or intensify what you've already been struggling with. If you know me, you know that I am an ardent believer of counseling and therapy. So I reached out to some of my closest friends who work at OnSite. It's one of the world's best counseling centers. And it turns out they just released an at-home experience that requires no travel, given everything that's going on with coronavirus. Now, please listen to me. This is not an ad. I don't get a dime for telling you about them. I just believe in what they are doing because I've gone through it. So starting October 12th, they are launching this program called Rediscovering You. And it helps you kind of go back to who you were created to be and the truest parts of you. And so I asked what they could do for our podcast listeners, and I'm giving you a promo code for $200 off the registration price. And yes, it still might feel like like a good chunk of change, but listen, trust me on this. There's not an amount of money that will be wasted on your mental health. The link to more information is in the show notes, but you can go to onsiteworkshops.com and then find the course Rediscovering You and you can enter the promo code Bianca and receive $200 off. Why? Because OnSite is awesome and they believe in mental health and so do I. I love you, friend. Know that if you are depressed, you are not alone. I'm praying for you and we have a team of people who daily intercede for prayer requests that come into our church, the Father's House OC. If you need prayer, visit tfhoc.org and submit a prayer request there or on our app. You are not alone, friend.